Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto and a 50% discount on a one-year subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any new ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Astra Taylor and Troy Vitesse. We spoke about their recent article in The Guardian, co-written with Jan Dukovitz, in which they argue that the principal driver of zoonotic diseases is the factory farming of animals and that the COVID-19 pandemic shows that we need to transition away from a meat-centred global food system. We also talked about an article Troy co-wrote with Drew Prendergrass in Jacobin entitled The Climate Crisis and COVID-19 Are Inseparable. You can find links to both articles in the description of today's episode. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books. July marks 50 years of radical publishing for Verso and to celebrate they've launched the Verso Book Club, a subscription model with print and digital options starting from just £5 per month. Join now and you'll get every new ebook that Verso publish, as well as one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. This month, Verso print subscribers will receive Leslie Kern's Feminist City and Patrick Coburn's War in the Age of Trump as part of their book club reading. There's also the option to become a Verso comrade and receive even more books in the mail, including one new work of politics or theory every month, as well as the occasional classic from Verso's backlist. All book club members will also get 50% off everything on their website and to celebrate their 50th year of radical publishing and the launch of the book club, each member tier is 50% off for the first three months. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Astra Taylor is a writer, organiser and documentary maker. Her books include The People's Platform, Culture in the Digital Age and Democracy May Not Exist But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Her most recent film is What is Democracy? My second guest is Troy Vitesse. Troy is an environmental historian and postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University and the co-author of Half-Earth Socialism, which will be published in the spring of next year. Remember, if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. In the article you co-wrote in The Guardian, 
You argued that the principal driver of zoonotic diseases is industrial animal agriculture, which might be surprising to some people given that the zoonotic disease that we're all thinking about at the moment, COVID-19, seems to have emerged from the sale of, of exotic animals with the virus possibly crossing the species barrier from bats to humans via a pangolin. And obviously both bats and and pangolins are known to be sold in so-called wet markets in China. So could you speak a little bit about the evidence that backs up the claim that it is primarily industrial animal farming that is driving zoonotic disease? Well, you're definitely right in this case. It it did come from possibly a pangolin or a different animal in, in the wet market. But I think the way we should see it is we shouldn't separate these kind of two spheres between having exotic animal industries of various kinds and the livestock trade because they're linked. So what happened in China in this instance was that a lot of small holders, they were pushed out of the market by larger firms in the 1990s. And so you have a lot of people in the countryside who just don't have enough to do and much less income. So the government actually encouraged them to get into wildlife farms or or poaching. So suddenly you have this huge booming trade and then you also have a lot more middle-class people who were willing to buy uh, what had previously been a pretty rare good. And, you know, a lot of, this is like a boy, this is a conspicuous consumption to eat lots of rare species, right? So you have these things coming together as a, again, like a kind of alternative rural strategy. The other thing I would say is we really stress the livestock industry because it's the largest force in the world for changing the face of the earth. So most of the world being used for pasture and for feed crops for animals, something around 4 billion hectares, which in nothing is as close to that. It's the same size as the Americas being dedicated just towards growing enough food for animals to be eaten. So the way you should think about the emergence of new diseases is that we have this interface between us and the natural world. And the more people you have near animals, both wild and domestic, the greater chance there is is going to be a pathogen jumping between species. And either we have a lot of people working in industrial animal industries, or these industries are then going into wild places and tearing them down and raising them and replacing them with feed crops and and pastures and, and all that. And then suddenly these areas are very close to wild animals. Right? So then they can really jump from, let's say, a bat to a pig to a person, which is what happened in the 90s in a village called Nipa in Malaysia, which is a really bad outbreak there. So, I mean, we really have to think about these things together, and too often they're discussed as two separate problems. To add to that, I mean, I think what's so interesting is that zoonotic illnesses are not rare in the least. You know, many common viruses are this is their origin. They've they've come from other species and, and jumped to human beings. I mean, going back throughout human history. So what's interesting is almost how it strikes people as novel, right? That this is a shocking fact when Ebola, HIV, arguably many forms of influenza, that's why we talk about avian flu, right? So why isn't this something that people talk about more? Why isn't this more commonly addressed? And I think it's precisely for you know, some of the reasons that Troy just laid out, because it requires then a closer examination of these massive industries and, you know, a kind of taking of responsibility on the part of human beings for our, for our role in exacerbating the conditions that make these diseases more virulent and destructive. 
Do you think also something that makes it harder for people to think about the issue of zoonotic diseases and to think about the closer interaction between humans and animals is that it doesn't intuitively feel like that to many people. The fact of urbanisation and the fact of the destruction of so much of the natural environment perhaps leads people to think that we are becoming sort of ever more separated from animals and nature. Well, I mean, I think that's... That's part of it. People think they're separate. But I mean, you have to think about how many people have had a urinary tract infection, right? And something like, you know, two-thirds of Americans have had one at some point. And if you think about that, that comes from E. coli, which comes from animal feces and, and probably from animal meat. So, I mean, the animal industry is affecting us, right, on a massive scale. And there are other diseases. I forget the exact name of it, but it, it's... Its discovery earned the 2005 Nobel Prize in, in medicine because it turns out something like 40% of humanity has this, this pathogen that causes a stomach ulcer and potentially stomach cancer. And again, a, a huge number of people around the world have this. So again, we kind of think we are separated from animals. And again, I think you don't have to see these industries to be affected by them. If you live near a slaughterhouse or something like that, or one of these pig processing plants and, and uh, CAFOs, then you're going to have asthma, you're going to have pig shit in the air, and you're going to breathe that in as well. But I think this idea that we have been separated from nature is a false one because we're obviously connected by these long commodity chains that we can't see. But the flip side of that is I think the solution we're advocating is we actually do need to separate ourselves from nature in some way. We actually need to rewild more uh, of the world and we need to stop eating meat actually kind of step back and close that disease portal that is quite open right now and close that by actually having fewer interactions with wild animals and domesticated animals to protect ourselves at some point because this could be much worse i mean if avian flu h5n1 which is a strain of avian flu if that became transmissible between people which it hasn't yet, but if it does, it has a mortality rate of 60%. So, I mean, if you have something like that with that's infectious and has a long incubation period, then no, we're really screwed, right? This could be, basically, SARS-CoV-2 could just be like the, the common cold compared to that. So we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, I think, th- I like what you how you phrased it, Alex, and I think Troy's point is so good, getting at this paradox that the seeming separation from nature is actually putting us in this terrible risk because the mechanisms that we use for these industrial farming practices are so pernicious. And so there's this sense that I think Troy and I are totally in agreement here that what we actually need to do is just let nature alone as much as possible. I mean, biodiversity has been shown to be a huge boon to stopping the spread of these zoonotic illnesses because diversity sort of acts as a buffer. Whereas what's happening in factory farms, and we have factory farms in the United States where, you know, over 100,000 animals are crammed into small spaces. So, of course, this increases the risk of the evolution of these sorts of viruses. But then the other techniques, the farming techniques that are used, create other pathogenetic risks like antibiotic resistance. So I think this, exactly right to say terrible strain of avian flu could come about, but lots of experts are also warning that this technique of sort of giving antibiotics just in the feed for these farm animals, you know, to kind of 
mitigate disease in the short term is going to create these super bugs that, you know, I think right now we're in a better state to imagine what that future would look like. I mean, imagine a situation where you can't go to the hospital, like people don't want to go to the hospital now because they're afraid of contracting this novel coronavirus. And there could be a future where you don't want to go to the hospital because you're going to become infected with some sort of monster bacteria that literally there's no treatment for. So suddenly elective surgeries are out, you know, medicine as we know it shuts down. I suppose we see a full taste of that with MRSA, don't we? Yes, exactly. Right. So that could be so much worse. And so it's this thing of, a, you know, the short term domination of nature, right? So we can have these completely unnatural factory farms raise and slaughter billions of animals a year. Well, it's, you know, we're putting our entire species at risk to do that. And so there are very strong, rational scientific arguments for leaving nature alone. I mean, in the piece that Troy and I co-authored, we say that, you know, eating meat is a socially acceptable form of science denial, because you have to ignore so many risks. These pandemics, people have been warning of them. I mean, not just scientists, but also people like Mike Davis, obviously, who's written a lot about this. People are worried about antibiotics. People are worried about the environmental consequences and global warming. I mean, so it really is, there's an astonishing amount of denial in every bite of animal flesh people eat. And on that question, in the article, you make what will seem to many people the quite radical proposal of eventually aiming for the abolition of the farming of meat for human consumption. Is it your view that even if we think about an earlier period, if we go back to, to I don't know, the 1970s or, or, or earlier when there wasn't factory farming on quite such a global scale, perhaps it wasn't farming in China, for instance, wasn't on the factory farming model. Is it your view that there was really no sort of moment in history after the agricultural revolution where we're not permanently risking danger in terms of zoonotic diseases because the farming of animals is just inherently dangerous in terms of the production of, of new viruses? Well, I would say that clearly even like traditional small-scale animal husbandry has its problems because that's where the, a lot of these diseases emerged over the last 10,000 years. I mean, you have relatively few people and you have relatively small flocks and herds, but you already have Lots of diseases like influenza is a 4,000 years old. I think measles comes from render pest, which is a cow disease. And we got leprosy from water buffalo. And these are all old diseases, right? And even doing very small changes to animal life cycles. Say, for example, if you want to, let's say, have a herd of goats and you kill the males and you eat them, and then you have more females to have more milk, and then you have a steady production of goat young, then you're actually going to risk other kinds of diseases that basically you have to have a this particular bacteria that comes from the weaning of baby goats, right? So suddenly when you have a lot of females and, and children, this is going to become endemic in a way that it wasn't beforehand. So even like very small changes can, can lead to diseases coming about. The thing is, and we try to stress this in our work, is that I think people say, well, there's always been disease, right? So therefore, this is like a random event. Like this is kind of like who knows when this is going to strike, but it's going to strike. And this has been with us since, you know, the bubonic plague or, or whatever. The thing is, at some level, that's true. But then there's been a huge increase in the number of new pathogens emerging uh, really since the 1970s. 
and even older diseases, such as West Nile, right, and among others, that maybe emerged in the early 20th century, they're relatively rare, and then suddenly they're much more common. So the question is, why is there a shift, right? And if you actually look at how people were talking about these diseases in the 1970s, they're saying, well, we're kind of done. We were making so many vaccines and antivirals, and we have all these great antibiotics. I believe Steven Pinker was, was making that sort of argument rather more recently than the 1970s. Yeah, well, but it's funny to read these scientists in the 1970s and say, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're going to probably see the end of infectious disease quite soon, right? And they're telling grad students, like, this is going to be a boring field. And then a few years later, you have the birth of Ebola and HIV, and plus, you know, many other diseases since then. And then already by the 90s, they're saying we're entering a catastrophic new age, like there's going to be an avalanche of microbial threats. And that's linked to definitely the expansion of, of factory farming. Which, which you're right, was pretty small scale until the 1950s, and then kind of goes worldwide by the 1990s, especially in China. That's part of it, but it's also the expansion of mining and suburbs and many other things that we've, we've done to reduce the habitat for wild creatures. Astra, just going back to your point on the denial of the dangers of meat-eating, how widespread do you think that denial is even on, on the left and, and the socialist left? And to the extent that it does exist, what do you attribute that to? I think there is a, a widespread disavowal of the uncomfortable truths of meat consumption, but it bothers me more profoundly when it's on the left because I count myself as a member of this community and is socialist politics are really important to me. And so when I see comrades refusing to engage with this question in, in a serious good faith way, I'm always very disappointed and disheartened. I mean, I think especially because the left, I think, is you know making powerful inroads in its analysis of, for example, the importance of being critical of capitalism if we want to take seriously the threat of global warming, right? And say, okay, this requires, you know, you have to understand the political economy of what's driving these environmental shifts and, you know, not just believe that we can create a sort of green capitalism or have a bit of sustainability in our, our development. So we have, rightly, a movement that is saying, you know, we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. So there, we want the abolition of the fossil fuel sector. We want to euthanize this industry that is an industry of death. I mean, it, literally in, in the sense of where hydrocarbons come from, they are dead fossilized organisms, but also in its effects on the ecosystem. Uh, and also, I think we should bracket just to pick up on a point from the last round of comments, I mean, that Climate change also creates all sorts of disease threats. You know, I'm thinking about Lyme disease, which is spreading further and further north as climate changes. So, I mean, all of these all of these issues are intersecting and related. So then why is there this, this wall when it comes to meat? And I think it's because it's deeply personal. I mean, I, you know, other people have written much more about this or thought about it more than I have. But, you know, I think people are very attached to food on a kind of personal cultural level. It's one of the most intimate things. It's what you're putting in your body. People's tastes are very strongly formed from childhood. But nevertheless, I think, you know, we have to, especially as socialists, engage with this. And, you know, what are what does it mean to, on a deeper level, what does it mean to say that we have the right to own other creatures, own them and, you know, and actually murder them and then consume them? If we're going to be critical of structures of ownership, of property, you know, then I think we have to interrogate the grounds, like on a much deeper level, what entitles us to dispossess 
animals, you know, in the sense that we're stealing their habitats to essentially treat them like they are machines and to deny them a connection to what we could call their species being, right? Like to, to deny them the things that they as animals would naturally be inclined to enjoy and pursue. And so I think this is a big, is a huge area that is just not taken seriously. And it's almost like, you know, people will talk about the market shaping every facet of life from you know, education and how, how we study to our healthcare system. But, you know, people really won't grapple with the way that this multi-billion dollar, I mean, you know, I think meat is like a $900 billion a year industry, how that is shaping their desires. The industrial agriculture is one of the most vicious industries out there. They treat in here in the United States, anyone who dares to cross them right, is deemed a terrorist. I mean, they've been incredibly aggressive in these what are called ag-gag laws, right, where it's like you basically can do no investigative journalism or you're going to spend your life in federal prison. And, you know, they're also doing these ridiculous things where they're creating laws state by state where, you know, people can't call alternative plant protein products meat, right? You can't call something a veggie burger or soy milk or whatever. So they're incredibly aggressive, hostile industries. They control huge amounts of land, labor, (laughs) capital. They're incredibly destructive to the environment. You know, industrial agriculture, a huge driver of global warming. And yet people, even leftists, like to think, oh, no, I just eat what I like to eat. I'm frustrated. And I think this moment of the pandemic... As leftists, we try to seize every crisis and wake people up a bit, right? And so I think this is a moment where, at least I feel myself, emboldened to talk about these issues because we know that the worst is yet to come. This is just a taste. I would just say that it's not so surprising that the left has been pretty useless but dealing with the animal question. You have to kind of also think about why are leftists often bad about dealing with racism or sexism amongst themselves or their own practice. I guess it demands a certain self-criticism that doesn't always come naturally, unfortunately. And the other thing is interesting is that when people kind of do kind of see the environmental crisis as something serious and they recognize that really this is a single environmental crisis, right? There's no, it's not really useful to differentiate between climate change and mass extinction and epidemics. It's all the same crisis, which is really us destabilizing the biosphere and taking away land from, from animals. And the thing is, there's two ways to approach this problem. Either you want to say, we have to, well, we got to stop and we have to kind of uh, reverse this at some level, or you have to double down on it and say, we can find technical solutions and maybe under socialism, it will like unleash certain technologies that are maybe being held back under capitalism. And therefore, we're going to deal with it better. It will out technify the technologists of capital in some weird way. And you think you see that with geoengineering and you see that with nuclear power and other people who are supportive of fully automated luxury communism. The exception being Aaron Bastani, who actually says we have to rewild and we have to use lab-grown meat and stop eating meat. So I think people see there's a need to confront this issue and you can either go one way or the other. And it's very telling how people make that decision. In terms specifically of ending meat consumption, just in terms of strategy for winning people around to that point of view, which obviously on a global level is, is certainly a minority one, is the most sensible thing to to focus upon the beneficial effects for human beings in terms of reducing the viral threat, reducing the impact that factory farming has on global warming? Or would it be better to, to focus more in terms of the impact on, on animals themselves? Because I imagine many vegans or many people in the animal rights community might feel that 
the impact on humans should in some sense be a secondary concern because we're talking about very just absolutely massive levels of suffering that is caused by the industry to animals. My reaction to that is that what I would like to interject into the debates about animals is more of an attention to political economy. You know, I think when you only talk about animals in the limited sense of wanting to mitigate suffering, right, you can find yourself then in an alliance with utilitarians and even, you know, sort of effective altruists. And I'm fine to I'm fine to walk along with people for part of the way, right? I think that that's part of coalition building and making change. But I think you know, there's limitations to that analysis and limitations to, to where that gets us when we start visualizing the future and, and also limitations in terms of thinking about power and how power operates and specifically the powers of capital. Why, again, you said, you know, we're a minority and we're, we're becoming more and more of a minority as vegans because meat industries are aggressively advertising their products and pushing red meat as the sort of symbol of a good life, you know, into countries that ate a lot less meat traditionally, and trying to find new emerging markets to increase their profits. So, you know, a lot of vegans also emphasize that health benefits for people, I think there's limits to that. You know, I think we should be vegan, even if it's less healthy. I think it is more healthy, but I'm not here for the extra three months of my life it's going to give me, right? For me, it's connected to a bigger, yeah, bigger vision of a socialist society, you know, one that tries to get out of certain scarcity mindsets. So, you know, a sort of hoarding of resources. This is hoarding of material resources, but also of sort of a scarcity of compassion. Like to me, I'm just like a society, I would like to live in a less violent world. You know, and at this moment, you know, my mind first goes to the debate that's finally happening on a sort of national or global level about the abolition of prisons. You know, I would like to extend that and see the abolition of slaughterhouses. It's very, you know, these have been the epicenters actually of the COVID crisis, right? People were housed in prisons, animals, slaughterhouse workers working in these horrible conditions, you know, where they kill other creatures. The third site has been nursing homes where old people are effectively warehoused as surplus. So to me, these are all connected as part of a, a vision of a, of a very different kind of way of valuing life, and not just human life. Going back to that point you made earlier about meat production preventing animals from experiencing their species being, I suppose it seems slightly strange, the resistance to thinking about ending the meat industry on the left, because in terms of the horror that socialists feel towards the capitalist system, it's precisely in terms of that instrumentalizing effect, the treating human beings as just as just tools for the valorization of capital. And, and yet we don't see that analysis extended to animals. My sister, Sonora Taylor, who wrote a book called Beasts of Burden, and the subtitle is Animal and Disability Liberation. She's a disabled scholar, and her experience as a physically disabled person became basis for a radical solidarity with non-human animals. So Sunny and I gave a lecture at a conference that Troy actually organized on animals, and the left. And one thing we did was just search around for a few hours to see places where influential leftists, specifically Marx, had used the metaphor of the animal, right? And so what? whenever animals come up for Marx, it's always in this position of total and utter degradation, right? And we, we know this because people say, don't treat me like I'm an animal. Marx would say things like, you know, man in this economic system is reduced to a beast of burden. And so I think that that's so built into our metaphors, our way of framing social relations, that this is what it means to be, to be an animal, to be abused and exploited. And so that's 
that's a reference point. And that's why there's this constant motif of, yeah, don't treat me like I'm an animal. And I guess what Sunny and I and also Troy want to ask is, well, why do we treat animals like they're animals in that sense? Because that's a human construction. What does seem to set our species apart is that we instrumentalize other creatures and other uh, members of our own species in these terrible ways. Well, if I could just add to that, and I'm thinking about your, your broader question of like, how do you actually get a, like a vegan Marxist politics out there? Or how do you actually get this idea of mandatory veganism out into the world and get some kind of following for it or a force for it? And I suppose, first of all, you know, we're just starting this. And I think to even get people to think seriously about their own eating habits and to actually try to politicize food is a start and to get the left to actually think about it. Because I, the way I see it, like I'm also you know, a leftist and you want to use those tools of analysis that Astro was talking about in terms of to really think about why are we in the state that we're in. And I think utilitarians don't have a conception of what capitalism is. And so they can't explain why things have gotten worse over time and they can't imagine a world beyond it either. So I think you really want to combine like the biggest problem in the world, which is the environmental crisis, with the strongest analytical techniques, which is which is Marxism. And you also want to work on coalition building, because there's a reason why conservationists and vegans aren't very well liked. I mean, they often have very bourgeois or even somewhat fascist politics, especially for Malthusian conservationists, and they alienate people and they make bad comparisons towards disabled people or to poor people and so forth. So they're always a tiny minority, and that's why they're politically ineffective. But you want to hope that a mass movement that recognizes the importance of this question will actually get something done. I think that's the only way anything's going to happen. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are vegans deserve a lot of criticism in this, too. And the annoying vegan is a stereotype for a reason. So we we have to apologize profusely for this. But, you know, there are bad analogies to be made, you know, and there are good analogies to be made. And I think, you know, my sister in her book makes powerful analogies between the conditions of disabled people and the conditions of animals, right? And so this is... This is the basis of her thinking around you know, the question of solidarity across species, right? How do we form that? And I think it's also her observations about the way that factory farming is actually based upon disabling animals, right? So most animals in factory farms, their bodies are completely broken. Chickens suffer from osteoporosis and broken legs and wings because they can't hold the body weight that we've now, you know, engineered them to to have, right? I mean, disability is absolutely rampant. And then also the workforce is is maimed. They have repetitive stress injuries. You know, they physically suffer an immense amount. And in that sense, what we're seeing with this pandemic is just a continuation of that, right? We're not in a state of exception as we are inclined to believe because it's not a surprise when you actually look objectively at the conditions in slaughterhouses. It's not a surprise at all that these are the most horrific centers of disease outbreaks because these are places where illness and disability are totally common. And so I think that's part of what why I think we're trying to be a bit more forceful and why we're risking being even more annoying vegans in this moment is because the things that we're seeing right now are, they are predictable. They're part of a long process and they didn't just come out of nowhere. This is not the exception that we're treating it as. 
And in terms of that question of states of exception, and I think this was true around the financial crisis, that I mean, it's maybe quite common in any moment of crisis to think that the big event, in, in, in this case, the pandemic and, and the associated economic shock, will have this really kind of transformative effect by itself, which will inevitably lead to major changes. But is there reason to think that the future might look rather more like the world of 2020 than a lot of us suppose? So instead of seeing sort of big fundamental changes when it comes to supply chains, animal agriculture, population movement, and, and tourism. Instead, what may be more likely, unless the left starts to win, is, will be just a ramping up of technologized systems of disease control, more tracking and tracing, maybe more viral research, and various measures just to keep the show on the road, as it were. Well, that was the previous idea, right? They had the PREDICT program that was started in 2009 that was to track newly emerging pathogens in the wild, right? And they found like a thousand new diseases. This was abolished by the Trump administration, right? Yeah, 2019, he, he got rid of it. So there's two ways of thinking about this in the scientific literature. There are people who are saying a public health measure is to get people to eat less meat, right? And the American Public Health Association publicly advocates every year to get rid of factory farming, right? To have a moratorium on it. So this this is one way to think about it, right? And the other way to think about it is we can control it. And I think it's similar to how people can think about the environmental crisis generally. It's like we can geoengineer our way out of this or we can rewild, right? And geoengineering and I think trying to be predictive about and also to make vaccines quickly enough, that's a technical fix that is not very reliable because the natural system is just way too complicated for it. Like it's not going to work every time or even that often versus rewilding is going to work for sure and give lots of benefits, but it's going to require big changes and you're going to run into opposition. I guess the thing is also we think about the food industry as a big industry. And of course, in absolute terms, it is. But in, in relative terms, it's puny. It's like 2% of the world GDP, right? So compared to, let's say, the fossil fuel industry or cars or whatever, it's it's much smaller, right? Like the biggest meat company in the world is what JBS in, in Brazil, and it's like $25 billion, right? I mean, and how much is Saudi Aramco worth? Like a trillion dollars. I mean, like there's, there's, these are minnows, right? But we can't beat them. So the reason why they're so powerful is that 95% of people eat meat and they like cheap meat, right? There's a lot of popular support. So until you really get people to politicize this, they don't even need to be very powerful enemies. Like I, I was working on an article with some marine biologists recently, and the question was, like, who's pushing this weird kind of denialist thread in the scientific literature saying that fish don't feel pain? Because it makes no sense. Like, you know, they're animals, they're you know, quite... You know, they, you can tell if a fish is feeling pain when you hurt it. It's quite, it's quite clear, and there's no real reason why they wouldn't. And the argument to say that why they don't is because they don't have, you know, a certain brain function that that mammals have. It also doesn't make sense. The thing is, it's pushed by anglers, and and the whole industry around angling, the scientific apparatus, and all these fishery bureaus and government and whatnot. They also are pushing this, and so it's like a puny enemy in a way like well we can't beat the angling lobby you know like it's just not even like big trawlers or aqua farms or it's angling the angling times yeah exactly well like the fishermen or like trout and stream or i don't know whatever it is and all these these magazines and these like kind of kooky scientists pushing bad science right but they create they muddy the waters and People just kind of shrug, saying, I guess there's a debate, and, and then it keeps going up. But again, we can't even defeat those people, right? <laughs> so it's, it's really getting people to think about it. And I think 
by getting the left to become reflexive on this, that would really change the conversation and, and, and broader society. But until then, we're going to be very easily defeated. And in terms of like what's going to happen in the future, yeah, I'm not expecting a mass rewilding and a big switch to happen. Because it's amazing where even if you read a lot of lefty articles and lefty magazines, they won't talk about the animal issue, right? They won't talk about the real... And it's kind of like talking about climate change without talking about fossil fuels. Like, it's just crazy how even you know, scholars and the left and so forth are talking about, about COVID. I think Troy's point about the fact that we can't beat the anglers is, is so crucial. And this, I mean, we've reiterated this, but it's so important. It's like, this is because people on the left don't take this seriously as a political issue. I mean, to go back to my point about the fact that some of the only people charged with terrorism in the United States are animal rights activists. I mean, I personally have friends who have spent time in federal prison over what should be just absolutely sort of common acts of, you know, civil disobedience against corporations, right? But because they were up against this specific sector, they, you know, were completely outrageously punished. And so it's, to me, it's very sad. It's like, what, you know, why, why isn't this taken seriously as something that should be concerned to a community that, you know, claims to be about, you know, building a better world. And, and so I'm not sure, I don't know, I think there's, you know, a sort of pre-strategy question that people like Troy and I have to gauge in, which is, yeah, what is the best way to talk to, you know, talk to our comrades about these issues? <laughs> I'm not sure we figured it out yet. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.